0: Hello, this is Marshall Poe of the New Books Network. The NBN is run by volunteers, but we do have expenses. If you'd like to support us, please go to any New Books Network website. There you can make a tax-deductible contribution. Just click the Donate to the NBN link and follow the instructions. Alternatively, you can click the Amazon link before you make your Amazon purchases. Since the NBN is a member of the Amazon Affiliates Program, Amazon pays us a small fee for referrals. Whether you can help us out or not, thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoy the following interview.
1: Welcome to New Books and Sociology on the New Books Network. We are Ellis Jones, Assistant Professor of Sociology
2: at Holy Cross College in Worcester,
1: Massachusetts, and Jerry Lemke, Emeritus Professor of Sociology at Holy Cross. Our guest for this edition is Michael Schwabe author of Rigging the Game, How Inequality is Reproduced in Everyday Life. It's recently out in a new second edition for Oxford University Press. Michael is a professor of sociology at North Carolina State
2: University. He is the author of several other books, including The Sociologically Examined Life, which we will also talk about.
1: We're very pleased to be with Michael for the next 50 minutes or so. Michael, this is the second edition of Rigging the Game. Most of us would be pleased as Punch to have one edition published by the prestigious Oxford University Press, your publisher. So, first of all, congratulations on that. Thank you. Perhaps we can begin um, with what goes into a decision to move a book to a second edition. Is it reviews? Is it sales? A good agent? or something that most of us would never think of. Can you take us behind the curtain, so to speak, for a look at how a sociological work like rigging the game gets the visibility that it has?
3: Well, let me answer the question about the the second edition. It's uh, it's probably three things. Um, It's um, wanting to keep the book alive in the market. If there's a market for the book, uh, and, and people who use the book, who assign it in classes, are, are attentive to um, uh, the currency of a book in terms of uh, research and uh, current events and, and recent developments. Um, you want to you keep the book useful and, and keep it up to date for people who, who like the book and are, are getting uh, good mileage out of it with their students, so that's part of it. Um, and, and I also feel, feel that as an author when I uh, look at the book and, and, and see how things are changing um, since the first edition has come out. And, um, you, know, want to, you know, want to bring it up to date to, to acknowledge anything that's changed, any new events that might be on the minds of faculty and students. So uh, those are two pieces. And then the third piece is a really good editor. So uh, my editor at Oxford... Uh, Sheriff Pankratz is—it's uh, just a wonderful editor, and so she keeps me apprised of how uh, how the books are doing and um, what kind of feedback she's getting. And so um, when Sheriff says, "No, maybe it's time to do a new edition of Rigging the Game," and, and uh, you know, kind of keep, again, keep it up to date and keep it fresh in the market, um, I, I listen, and that's uh, that's a part of what prompted it. Mm-hmm.
2: Um, you know, I think many listeners are probably familiar, most familiar with your previous book, The Sociologically Examined Life. It was a best-selling and maybe continues to be a best-selling introductory textbook for sociology or alternative to a textbook. Um, and it really was representing one of the best, I think, uh, alternatives in the field to intro texts. I was wondering what readers might recognize in rigging the game as either stories or writing style or teaching techniques, etc., that have been carried over from that book into this. Is there any overlap?
3: Sure. I, I, um, I first, well, actually, I, I started using vignettes for discussion purposes in class. Little short stories I would write just to illustrate sociological ideas and, and uh use them to generate discussion, get students thinking and talking about uh, things that were otherwise represented abstractly in uh, the text that we were reading. So I started there, and then I incorporated some stories, a little bit longer versions of those vignettes in The Sociologically Examined Life, and and they seemed to work well. I got good feedback um, from students and from people who used the book that that those short stories were engaging, that students found them useful for, again, thinking about the sociological concepts that were otherwise being discussed in a more abstract way in the book. So when it came time to write Rigging the Game, I thought, well, this, this seems to work well as a, as a teaching technique and as a way to get ideas across. So I decided to incorporate some longer stories. So um, there are two stories in uh, Rigging the Game, um, one is kind of a fable about how uh, inequality gets produced through one set of historical circumstances that tend to recede from memory, that kind of disappear over subsequent generations, but ha- have lasting and enormously consequential effects. There's another one that, uh, another story in the book uh, that shows parallels between different kinds of criminal activity at a at a local level and an international level to try to get students thinking about. Um, how um, power and exploitation can operate uh, very similarly in ways that we might otherwise think of as very different, and then there 's a third fictional piece in rigging the game it 's it's an interview a uh, fictional interview uh, with a woman who is a political activist in the 21st century and she at an uh, advanced age is being interviewed by an undergraduate, and she looks back on her experience and the uh, events that unfolded in the 21st century. Of course, it's fictional, but it gives students who read the story, um, read that interview, a chance to think about what's happening right now and how things that are happening now may unfold and have certain kinds of implications for the future, and that's, that's the future they're going to be living in. So, again, I've gotten good feedback from people on that that... It uh, draws students in, gets them thinking about, uh, again, future implications, uh, helps them extrapolate from what they're seeing going on now and, and think about, well, why does, why does sociology matter? What, uh, what can it help us see now that's going to make a difference in the future? So, so I wrote those pieces, the three fictional pieces that are amidst other analytic chapters, again, to uh, try to make some of the concepts more memorable, to draw students in, to generate discussion, and, uh as I say, based on feedback, they've it's been fairly effective.
1: Yesterday, I saw the movie "The Big Short," and while I was watching the movie, I was also thinking about your book. <laughs> huh? um, I don't know that they use the expression "rigging the game," but that certainly is what the movie is about have you th- have, do you ever use films? like that in your classes would you think about using? Have you seen the film? I guess that would be one question. Uh, uh, are there ways that you could use a film like that in your class as a kind of contemporary current um, event that that you would want students to understand?
3: Certainly you could. Uh, I have not seen that particular film. Um, there, are, there are very good uh, fictional representations of factual matters. Um, I tend in my classes to use nonfiction films um, Uh just to kind of make that boundary clear. Otherwise, um, I fear sometimes uh, students will tend to... think that something's being made up. I, w- I want to show them, when I show a film, I want them to appreciate its documentary qualities, and then we can analyze those for their factual accuracy. Sure. Whereas if you're showing a fictional film, um, it might be really good things illustrated, but um, it just leaves too much room for skeptics, <laughs> skeptics among students to dismiss it. I, and I, I have some worry about that. Sure. I've, I've shown films. Uh, I teach Corporate Power in America. It's another course I teach. Um, I've used the film uh, Inside Job about uh, the uh, shenanigans and criminal activity that uh, lay behind the uh, financial meltdown of 2008. Mm-hmm. Um, I taught that course this fall, and I used the film Merchants of Doubt uh, as a nice compliment to the book. We read the book Merchants of Doubt. So um, so mm-hmm. I do use films, and mm-hmm. I, I, I think they're, again... Uh, they have the uh, virtue of making things come alive for students uh, making uh, things memorable uh, generating discussion um, so and i also but I also think students have to be prepared so in each case they're reading material that complements the film, supplements their information um, but otherwise i i i think it's a great idea to use uh, uh-huh. visual materials and help students get their minds around what we're trying to teach in any way possible.
2: It's interesting. You know, I teach a course on consumer and corporate social responsibility and I, I've done something similar with uh, the book and the movie, the corporation, the documentary and the, and the book itself.
3: I actually um, used that book oh yeah, it, in my corporate power class. And there's a case where I know there's a film, but the film Overlaps so much with the book yeah. that um, when I have students read the book, I, I don't think it would be a good use of our time to then also show the film. So, right. so one makes these kinds of judgments as as an instructor,
2: right? Yeah. So before we leave um, the subject of the the sociological ex, uh, examined life, I was just wondering um, if that book in particular uh, opened up a number of doors for you in your own. Um, publication career, and if it still does. I You know, I just, um, when I think Michael Schwalbe, I think of The Sociologically Examined Life, and I wonder if that has led you down a particular path um, that you um, may not have expected.
3: Actually, it's an interesting question. Um, I was working on an entirely different research project when I started The Sociologically Examined Life, um, and I, what I came to realize in the course of doing that project was that it was going to be a long-term project, and it, it ended up becoming years uh, before it um, culminated in a book. And so in between, uh, I thought, well, I'll, what do I want to do with my writing time? And I had been thinking for years about a book about how to think sociologically. And it occurred to me that maybe that's what I should be doing during that period. I was, it was a field project. I was uh, writing field notes. I was in the field, and so I, I spent a lot of writing time uh, just writing, writing notes. But then I used my other writing time to start working on the sociologically examined life. Um, and, yeah, I, I, it's a very important book for me. I mean, I, I feel like... Um, you know it 's probably the book i 've written that has done the most to in some ways serve the discipline, but more important than serving the discipline is serving the students that come through our classes so that to me I think was the animating spirit behind that book was well, what can I convey to students who are beyond my classroom but are in sociology classrooms all around the country um, so i had I had that um, spirit that i brought to the book and and i think uh, the success of the book has um indicated that that other people have found the book uh, very useful for for teaching sociology in, in a particular way it's not everyone's you know cup of sociology the way i approach things <laughs> but um there are a lot of people who like the book and i've gotten wonderful feedback over the years from students As far as opening other doors, I think it probably did lead me to think, oh, maybe I should do a book about the reproduction of inequality, because that's what I write about otherwise as a scholar. That's what I study. It's what I teach about. Um, And if I had not done The Sociologically Examined Life, and if the book hadn't found the audience it did, I might not have done Rigging the Game. Hmm. Uh, I'm also thinking, now there will be a new edition of The Sociologically Examined Life. It's... um, Uh, the fourth edition is the most recent edition and that was published by McGraw-Hill and it's still available Um, but I'm going to do a fifth edition now with Oxford.
0: Interesting.
3: uh, Yeah, and that'll probably be out next year. Um, Publication schedule is still a little up in the air. I started working on it so I'll be updating some things, um, adding a couple chapters and um, hopefully uh, help the book reach uh, a wider audience. It's actually a maybe a new generation of younger teachers of sociology out there who might not even know the book exists. And my hope is that we can um, expand the reach of the book, expand the, the conversation to uh, to include more of those younger uh, instructors.
2: Yeah, certainly. It was a very powerful book. I, I myself, as a graduate student, adopted that to teach my introductory courses and continued on uh, in my early career. Um, it's just a wonderful Wonderful book. Um, Getting back to rigging the game, though, uh, could you give us an overview of your analysis? So for people who are not familiar, how you are using the word game and the word rigged and um, exactly what is being rigged. And then to just kind of link it to something um, that is kind of very contemporary. Um is this different than how President obama recently retur- referred to uh this idea that the game is rigged for the average american
3: well it it, it overlaps uh, clearly and you know, reading the game is a metaphor when i when I started writing the book i mean it um when I started writing the book um I kept coming back to this idea you know it, it's partly a matter of translating a sociological analysis to um, an audience, it's a student audience, um, not necessarily familiar with how sociologists think about these things. But most people have a conception of a, of a rigged game as something that's not entirely fair. It's somehow set up in a way that systematically advantages some players and disadvantages others. And not only that, but the players who are disadvantaged don't usually see how the game is rigged. So there's Need to to look beneath the obvious, to see something that's going on that you might not otherwise see, um, that's, as I say, advantaging one group or one player or set of players and and not another. And so as I was writing the book, this this kept coming back up this idea of rigging the game. And um, it actually didn't have the title for the book until after much of it was written, and it occurred to me, well, it really should be called Rigging the Game. So partly it's using that metaphor as a way to help students see the sociological analysis. So the sociological analysis um, includes looking at ways uh, laws and policies operate in our society to the advantage of uh, corporate capitalists, the very wealthy, the people who have the power to influence government in a way that makes the rules of the game. So what, what matters is how the rules are made, who makes them to benefit whom um, how they 're enforced how they 're interpreted and so I kind of keep coming back and forth between the metaphor and the actual goings on the, the political economic goings on that um, produce an unequal distribution of, of wealth and income and political power so so the so the metaphor is not the analysis the metaphor is a way to convey the analysis and then um, put a lot of sociological meat on those metaphorical bones um, as I go through the book. So um, we look at all kinds, or I look at all the different kinds of concrete examples, everything from labor law to uh, tax law, corporate lobbying, all the different ways that the rules that affect profit-making, the distribution of wealth and income in our society are shaped by those who have the power to shape them to advantage themselves. And even mainstream economists now uh, talk about very similar things. Uh, mainstream, you know, people like Robert Reich, uh, Stiglitz, um, uh, Paul Krugman, look at how policies are made and have been made in recent decades to enormously benefit, to disproportionately. Benefit the very wealthy, um, so they use they use a more technical language that economists like to use. They talk about rent seeking and um, and, and rigging the game. Is uh, sometimes that comes into political discourse. So uh, Elizabeth Warren used this term.
1: Uh, Are you in touch with any of of those political people or their their staffs? Um, you know, in some way that accounts for how the term rigging has really gotten into the political discourse?
3: I'm not. um, Mm. But these things uh, travel through mysterious channels. (laughs) (laughs) You know, so the phrase appears in one place and other people pick it up, it resonates. Mm. And again, I think it resonates sometimes in those political speeches for the same reason it resonates as a title of a book and as a metaphor for conveying an analysis Mm. is that it's easy enough to explain what a fair game is and what a rigged game is and then to say, well, okay, now let's look at our economy. Mm-hmm. Let's see if we can make sense of it in terms of this metaphor mm-hmm. and not just toss it off as a, you know, a one or two line phrase in a speech, but um, to really say, well, I'll start with this idea that the game is rigged and then look closely and see how that might be the case. Let's actually look at the details, the nuts and bolts of how this works um, because that's what matters ultimately. Right. As I say the metaphor is a vehicle for conveying the analysis, it's not the analysis itself.
1: Well let let this interview be the footnote to your <laughs> book <laughs> for for all of those political uses of, of the term. Another question. Um in the first chapter you say that inequality is an accomplishment. Mm-hmm. Um that it is created by humankind rather than a divinely or naturally given condition. Mm-hmm. I could imagine some listeners might counter with, Oh, come on, there have always been rich and poor. Even the Bible says the poor will always be with you. What's your response to that? Or uh, listeners who pick up your book, reading it, what would they find in the book that is your response? to that kind of comment?
3: Probably uh, several things. Um, I do note that if if one wants to take the the longer evolutionary view, for about 99% of the time that human beings have existed on the planet, we lived in a state of rough equality in hunting and gathering societies. Mm -hmm. So the kinds of um, uh, egregious inequalities in material wealth that we're familiar with uh, in the modern world really only began to take shape about ten or 12,000 years ago with the agricultural revolution when it became possible for human beings to create a tremendous surplus that could be unequally distributed. So one could look at it that way, take the really long evolutionary view of it. Another way to look at it is to say, well, uh, yes, you're always going to have inequality created by some kind of regime of oppression and exploitation as long as that's the way we organize human societies. And if we always organize them in such a way that um, power is concentrated in a small number of hands, uh, uh, that the state is controlled by a relatively small number of people as opposed to being controlled democratically, then yes, uh, we're always going to see some version of a rigged game or, or some arrangements of oppression and exploitation that allow some people to benefit disproportionately uh, relative to others. So um, that would be a a second response. And a third response is, well, look, let's look at how modern societies work, modern capitalist societies. If we understand how the game is rigged, in other words, how the rules by which our government and economy operate favor, disproportionately favor a small uh, percentage of the population, what this suggests is that we don't have to have perfect human beings to have a much more equal world. What we would have to do is change the rules of the game. If the rules of the game we operate by now produce tremendous inequality, then maybe we can think about ways to change the rules of the game to produce uh, a, a more beneficial state of equality. And certainly we can do that. What we've seen, again, over the last 30 years with increasing uh, inequalities in income and wealth is a consequence. Of changing the rules of the game, so we can we can change them back. It's it's a, it's a political matter. It's it's uh, not just a technical matter. It isn't as if this is a scientific mystery. Um, right. It's a it's a, it's a political matter to to understand uh, what needs to be done to change those rules of the game back. And so it's a matter of struggle. It's not it's not a scientific mystery.
1: One of the, you you mentioned uh, in passing moments ago uh, labor law. Mm-hmm. and it seems that one example of inequality being written into the rules of the game is the Taft-Hartley law in labor relations. Mm-hmm. Why is that a good example, and is there any move afoot that you know of to challenge Taft-Hartley? Is it on the, the agenda of any political campaign uh for example, the Bernie Sanders campaign, or or anything that uh, that that you are aware of.
3: Well, it sounds like there are two questions there. Yes. Uh, one about how Taft Hartley works, and, and there's there's an enormous literature now on on Taft Hartley uh, among labor historians and uh, legal scholars. So I would encourage anyone interested to to dig into that. Uh, if, if to the extent you're interested, it's it's complicated. But just to give you one example. Uh, Taft-Hartley forbids sympathy strikes. So if you're thinking that um, you could have working-class solidarity across workplaces and bring um, capitalist employers to their knees, so to speak, or at least create a kind of uh, additional uh, force or leverage for negotiating a, a contract or, or, or uh, uh, you know, making some changes in the workplace through uh, organized action, a sympathy strike is is not a legal possibility. Uh, workers are not allowed to um, uh, across industries uh, support each other. In effect, is what the what the law says. Those sympathy strikes are illegal, and that being the case, labor is, is enormously weakened uh, in their ability to um, through withholding cooperation exercise power in our society, and um, it acts hardly as is, is an enormous obstacle to uh, the power of working people in our country as for efforts to change it uh, periodically these uh, efforts emerge and they pretty quickly get shot down I mean shot down as in there are there is tremendous uh, opposition on the part of corporate capital to uh, keep Taft-Hartley in place, and not only keep it in place, but they'd be perfectly happy to, to see even more uh, repressive labor laws in place. In fact, we're seeing that now with the push to um, it, uh, create more uh, right-to-work states in, in the sure. U.S. and to destroy public sector uh, labor unions.
1: As in Wisconsin?
3: <laughs> As in my home state, yes. Mm-hmm.
2: So I have to ask, just because of the timing of our interview, um, are you at all involved with the Bernie Sanders campaign? And what what do you see there when you look at that campaign through the lens of some of what you you write about?
3: I'm not involved in the campaign. I did sign a Bernie Sanders petition when he was uh, there was a, a petition being circulated among academics. Uh, in support of Bernie Sanders' proposal for free college education in the U.S. Hmm. So I signed that, and um, that has has apparently got me on the Bernie Sanders mailing email list. Hmm. Uh, So I'm daily reminded that I should be sending him money. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) um, Bernie Sanders, uh, I I just um, wrote a short piece about this, and and other people have made the same point. Bernie Sanders is... um, a social democrat. He wants to see um, uh, you know, some of these changes in laws that have so uh, uh, exacerbated inequality in the last three decades changed. He wants a uh, better social safety net, uh, fairer taxation, um, free education, or at least publicly subsidized education, single, uh, single-payer single health care. These, these are all um, moves in the direction of uh, a more egalitarian social democracy that I think any humane, compassionate uh, people uh, ought to support. Um, and so, uh, you know, as far as we can go at the, at this moment, I would say, you know, by all means, if Bernie Sanders is on the ballot in in North Carolina when the time comes, um, I'll vote for him. Um, but um, you know, this is he's operating within uh, a capitalist framework. Um, so, you, you you asked earlier about. Uh, that use of the phrase rigging the game uh, in more popular or centrist political discourse, well, um, what I'm talking about in rigging the game is, I think, a little more fundamental. I'm talking about how, um, how capitalism fundamentally works, and then also, uh, on top of that, how it's worked in uh, concrete terms in recent decades. So when Obama or Elizabeth Warren or Bernie Sanders uses the phrase rigging the game, he's not really talking about recreating the game from the ground up. Uh, he's talking about tweaks, and uh, I would support those tweaks. I think those are uh, what we need right now. But in the long run, I would argue that if we don't look at who controls the game uh, and who's, uh, who controls the resources necessary to um, rig the game, it's just going to get re-rigged again, even if, we, even if we tweak a little bit around the edges. So, um, so another part of the, the educational purpose of rigging the game is to get people to see a little bit deeper than some of the um, analyses that uh, we get from mainstream political candidates, even ones as good as Bernie Sanders.
2: It's interesting. Along those lines, um, the Sanders campaign has, has popularized this notion, although I've, I've heard it in the Clinton campaign and it's been around for some time. Um, but in the second chapter, you discuss corporate personhood. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering if you can just briefly explain to people who are unfamiliar with the term what is troubling about this phenomenon. And, um, as a follow up, now that we've talked, you've mentioned tweaks and maybe fundamental reforms. Do you have any suggestions for resources or organizations that you think are actually doing the essential work that needs to be done to lay the foundation for, you know, more long-term reform in this area of corporate personhood?
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, well, for for um, people who don't know what corporate personhood refers to, it's just a kind of general term used to refer to the granting of uh, political and civic rights to, to corporations, uh, basically the same rights that we enjoy as individual human beings. Um, so under our Constitution, we have a whole host of rights uh, uh, written explicitly into the Bill of Rights, so freedom of speech, freedom of assembly, um, freedom of religion, um, equal uh, protection under the law, due process, we, could, we can go down the whole list, and, um, and there's no doubt that as individuals, Uh, we enjoy these rights should a corporation um, uh, a legal fiction um, an entity created on paper to uh, facilitate the making of money enjoy those same rights should a corporation have rights to free speech Uh, should it have the same rights to privacy as individuals Um, that's the question and um, Courts, through a whole series of cases that have unfolded since the late 19th century and all the way up to the present day, um, have more and more embraced this idea of corporate personhood. In other words, granting the same rights to corporations uh, as to individuals. Uh, And that's how we end up with decisions like Citizens United that that treats corporate spending as an expression of free speech um, equivalent to the free speech of individuals. So, um, so the move to to change that is a move to challenge the the at least aspects of the legal framework that we have right now that allows corporations or um, corporate corporations and, and representatives of corporate entities to um, to spend money as if money is speech and influence our political process. Um, in a manner uh, that's supposed to be equivalent to an individual, but um, is enormously amplified and represents a tremendously selfish interest in profit-making. So um, so there's opposition to this. There, there are movements afoot. The one that I'm most aware of um, uh, would be Move to Amend. Uh, you can look this one up online, If and this is a movement to try to get a constitutional amendment uh, created that would uh, basically uh, preclude corporate personhood, preclude the granting of political and, and uh, civic rights to corporations uh, in the way that they they have those rights now under uh, a whole set of legal decisions over the years. So um, Move to Amend is the organization. There have been other places around the country uh, that have also fought this. There was, um, for a time, and I'm not sure how active it is anymore, but there was a group called POCLAD, program uh, on uh, corporations' law and democracy that was uh, working on this and and actually had uh, local legal challenges to corporate rights. Uh, So different parts of the country, there have been uh, smaller versions of this, but Move to Amend is national, and um, they're they're pressing on, and I I think it would be a great idea. It's It's The whole idea of corporate personhood, I think, is an abomination.
2: Also, in, t- in Chapter 2, you explain that inequality is institutionalized, um, and I'm wondering if you can uh, flesh that out for listeners, um, and if you might be able to draw a parallel, for example, with uh, when the Black Lives Matter movement talks about racism as structural. Is mm-hmm. this a, a reasonable illustration of uh, what you were talking about uh, along the lines of inequality being institutionalized?
3: It's part of it. Um, what I, the larger idea behind saying inequality is institutionalized is that what I'm really saying there is that the reproduction of inequality is institutionalized, meaning that the ways that our organizations or if you want to say institutions, say an, uh, government, um, the way they're organized and routinely operate reproduces inequality. In other words, um, I'm trying to move people away or students away from the idea that inequality is all about individual characteristics and what individuals do to see that it's a matter of how organizations and institutions routinely operate to advantage some people and disadvantage others. So just like we were... Talking a minute ago, if the law is written in such a way as to grant uh, personhood rights to corporations, that's an institutionalization, um, a codification of of, of uh, uh, part of a legal framework that allows people in corporations to act in a certain way that will have the consequence of generating inequality. So I'm so again, I'm trying to lead people to see how the way our organizations and, and institutions routinely operate creates inequality and reproduces it. In the case of um, Black Lives Matter, um, what you might do at that level of analysis is to say, well, let's let's look at, uh, say, local police departments and look at who's in those police departments, What are the routine hiring processes that occur uh, such that we get certain people or forms of interaction? Uh, in these departments, how do we end up with uh, uh, almost exclusively white police departments uh, policing areas that are predominantly African-American or Latino and Latina? How, how does this happen? Well, what we would have to do is look at how these organizations, organizations and institutions routinely operate. It's not just about individuals thinking this way or thinking that way, being prejudiced or discriminatory. We need to look at how the organizations and institutions routinely operate to produce a situation where uh, we get again and again this kind of violence that we've, that we've been seeing uh, for a long time, but it's just become more publicly noticeable uh, in recent years.
1: Michael, you begin Chapter 3 with a reference to the Matthew effect which is derived from a biblical passage, Matthew twenty-five twenty-nine. I I always like the use of biblical references like that to set up a chapter. Um, I'm wondering if you could just tell listeners here, what is the Matthew effect? And sure. what in that chapter do you foreshadow by that reference?
3: This is, let me just double-check here. You said chapter 3.
1: Um, Do you need to be reminded what Matthew
3: 25? No, no, no. That I've got. Because <laughs> so, um, we did change the uh, the second edition. We did, uh, there was some chapter numbering, so I had to make sure I'm talking about the right chapter. So this uh-huh. is, yes. Actually, this is, okay. So um, the Matthew effect, um As you said, it's coming uh, out of um, uh, the Gospel of Matthew uh, that says, For unto everyone that hath shall be given, and he shall have an abundance. And I believe the next line is to the effect, then, um, uh, He that hath not uh, shall have less. Mm. Basically, it's uh, it's a line that Robert Merton used back in 1968 to talk about how scientists in prestigious universities get extra benefits, By virtue of their association with prestigious universities. They get more attention, they get more grant funding, um, more resources for for their work and so on and so forth. Um, And he was making a point about how science operates and and, Mm -hmm. um, in subsequent years people have used that idea to 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 capture or, or to refer to the phenomenon of advantages tending to accumulate. So, if you're in some way privileged or advantaged, it's often possible to parlay those advantages into even more advantages. So do, do you think that in
1: some cases people use Matthew 25 in order to justify inequality? Do Do you hear that? Uh, yes. Do you read that um, in in popular culture in popular discourse?
3: Maybe uh, there's probably there's probably no part of of, of the Bible or any other sacred text that hasn't been used to justify something horrendous uh, or something that seems perverse in light of what might have been the original intent. Um, I don't hear that, but I'm, I'm sure someone could, could make that case. They might say, well, you know, this, again, this is just how uh, things are. So the poor shall always be with us, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, see, you can find this stuff in the Bible, so um, why would one get all that worked up about it today? It's just mm-hmm. uh, part of the human condition, nothing you can do about it. But, of course, um, You know, Merton is, Mert is a sociologist who's making a point about how, again, institutions operate. So if you have some institutions or organizations within the institution of higher education that concentrate resources and um, have gathered tremendous prestige over the years, um, well, okay, you're going to see this phenomenon of uh, people who are professors in those institutions uh, being privileged in these very obvious ways, but then uh, subsequently enjoying a whole set of um, uh, consequent benefits because of that. It's a sociological point about how uh, privilege works or how uh, inequality works and has a tendency to uh, reinforce itself. Hmm. So, So that's what I would say. I would say, well, no... You know, again, let's uh, we can take the poetic rendering of this, uh, the metaphorical rendering, like reading the game, or the poetic rendering here out of the uh, Gospel of Matthew, and say, well, all right. So, so what does that look like in the real world as sociologists? Let's look and see how that actually occurs, and 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 uh, you know what the consequences are. So, so that's my usual response is just to uh, say, well, you know, we have these these, these figures of speech that. Uh, eloquently or poetically, vividly capture important ideas, but all right, then we have to you know, take some further steps to see what that looks like in the real world.
1: And is that, um, I'm wondering if that's then an example of of what you write about um, in your chapter entitled Arresting the Imagination. It, are imaginations for a better world and how to create a better world arrested because people use biblical passages uh, like the Matthew effect in order to justify um, things the way they are and and, and that's and, and, and so the Matthew effect or other popular biblical expressions are part of the Process of arresting the imagination. Um, well, is, is I that a, is 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 that is that a way that we can think about arresting the imagination?
3: I think that would be one possibility. There's a lot of there's a lot of folk wisdom that helps us just come to terms with a world that we know is fraught with inequalities and injustices. Mm-hmm. So, how do you deal with that? If you've got a conscience. Um, if you care about other people's well-being, if you think that uh, nobody deserves to suffer more than anyone else, um, you look around and you see that the world is is not like that, that that there are all these injustices and inequalities, and somehow you've got to come to terms with that. And I think you also have to come to terms, at least most people do, with um, it's not just powerlessness. it's It's a feeling that how things are, whether it's the physical world or the social world, how things are are just enormous. They're, 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 they're daunting to think about changing. If you want a world with more equality and more justice, how do you do that when you don't have any particular power? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think in the face of that, these little bits of folk wisdom, whether they come from uh, holy texts or, 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 or any other source, um, just kind of help us deal with that tension. Uh, that we feel when we desire, on the one hand, a more just and equal world, and we look and see that that's not the world we live in, and we feel like, wow, what can we do? How can we possibly change this? So we need some way to reconcile that, and I think that's what these bits of is to do. Well,
1: one of the things that you point out in that chapter is that high school and college curricula offer little exposure to alternative arrangements. Mm-hmm. Um, particularly for the way work is arranged. Mm -hmm. Um, We don't see examples, for example, of um, Mm co-ops that could be alternatives to the way things are. And students get little exposure to something like labor history. Mm -hmm. Um, and, And you say this has not changed over your many years of teaching. And I'm wondering what your thoughts are on why, things have not changed, and what can be done to change school curricula at at that level, particularly, say, in public schools, high schools, um, that does seem to be a rather daunting uh, problem. And I'm wondering if you – do you have examples that you can point to of where there have been some successful uh, efforts to to change uh, uh, curriculum?
3: Well, actually, it's funny. Um, <laughs> just a uh, with uh, probably within the same year that um, the right wing Republican takeover in Wisconsin occurred. Um, if I'm not mistaken, they uh, one of the the state uh, accrediting agencies recommended. I don't think this was a requirement. Recommended that the uh, curriculum in somewhere in K through twelve, probably high school in Wisconsin, include. Labor history. And I actually wrote a piece here in North Carolina, an op ed, uh, praising this this development in Wisconsin um, for exactly the reasons that I touch on in Rigging the Game. That this is an important part of understanding how our society got to be what it is today, is understanding labor struggles in U.S. history. Uh, Well, only months later, uh, we saw uh, things uh, turn around uh, in a most distressing way in Wisconsin. Um, so I guess one could say that, you know, there are, there are ups and downs. It's, 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 it's part of a class struggle, really, if you think about it, um, uh, teaching labor history and, and you're right, it's, it's not changed, at least in my teaching career in the last uh, 25, 30 years, When I've, whenever I've, when I've asked that question, if anyone in my classes has ever been required to take mm-hmm. a U.S. labor history course, I, I get nobody. Right. So there's whole set of understandings about how social change occurs that are left out why is why is that still the case well you know the forces (laughs) of um um The forces, that, <laughs> the forces, uh, that, yeah, the forces. Uh, well, it, it basically, it, it, because it is part of, of class struggle. If if you went to your local school board and and um, said, "Well, I, I want to require you know the following things," uh, you know, because students should should learn these things, you'd, you'd likely run into some considerable um, opposition. There, there are all many kinds labor leaders
1: on the local school board.
3: Yeah, <laughs> uh, it, it's a big question why these things haven't changed. There have been. Um, you know, local struggles to to make some of these changes, um, you know, and uh, you know, people write books like "Reading the Game" and the sociologically examined life. And I'm um, I'm going to start work at some point on on the third one in the in the trilogy, which I'm uh, wanting to call "Making a Difference," which is going to be about social change. Hmm. That's my goal. <laughs> um, but but you know, we do find these these pockets. That's I think what. Part of what drew me to academia in the first place is that um, there are possibilities for for critical thought. You know, it might not be what gets institutionalized um, considering, as I say, the political and economic forces arrayed against this kind of change. And we're talking about changes that threaten those political and economic interests. So it's very hard to institutionalize education that's going to put capitalism into question in any fundamental way. So um, you can teach about inequality in a lot of places. There's a lot of inequality, and let's talk about it as sociologists. It's when you start digging deeper and saying, well, what are the basic structures, the basic ways our society is organized to continually generate inequalities in income, wealth, and political power that um, it starts to get a little uh, dicey in the sense that you're much more likely to provoke resistance when you're talking about root causes. As opposed to superficial or surface manifestations.
2: Certainly. So. Yeah, it, it actually uh, segues nicely into my next question, which is um, concerns. A, a few years back, um, Michael Berowoy helped to popularize the term public sociology. And I was wondering if you consider yourself a public sociologist or a public intellectual. And if so, do you see you or our responsibilities as sociologists to communities outside of academia as, um, important? And if those, um, are, uh, reasonable to assume, then, um, how do you attempt to fulfill those responsibilities? How do you, you know, push yourself outside of academe to, um, reach that larger public?
3: That's a good question. Um, As you know, um, Michael Burwell (laughs) ran into some opposition to his view. A lot of sociologists very much liked the idea of of, uh, being more in public, uh, getting more sociological ideas out into public discourse, um, and a lot of sociologists like to think of themselves as contributing to that effort. But um, there were people who resisted. Um, sociologists who thought that our job is just to be more or less aloof scientific analysts of what's going on in society and not to uh, join the fray as far as uh, critique or, or activism or social change. Um, so there's, yeah, there's just considerable debate. I, I, I think what some people recognize is that the more active we are in critique and debate and activism and social change, the more likely we are to uh, arouse the reaction from those uh, forces of, of uh, capitalist power that I mentioned earlier. Um, a lot of us, I think a lot of sociologists, um, we, we do what we do and we get away with it because uh, we're probably not seen as, as a threat we wish we were. Um, but, um, to go back to your question, uh, yeah, I think I think we do have an obligation to, uh, at the very least, get our analyses out there um, to help people better understand the way the world works. And um, we focus, as sociologists, on different things, but in the classroom, through our writing, we're always trying to, uh, I think, uh, enhance others' understandings of the world around them. Uh, and presumably, part of that, at least implicitly, is to empower people to have more control over their worlds or to participate in determining, uh, the conditions of their lives. So I think that creates, uh, an obligation not to cloister ourselves in the university and not to talk only to ourselves, but to share our understandings, uh, with wider audiences. And, and yeah, Bur- where I was promoting public sociology, which was kind of an innocuous way of framing it, um, I think it was a a good thing to uh, to make that something that was legitimated uh, in the mainstream of the discipline by the president of a s a and you know I try to do this i I've, uh, you know, in addition to activist involvements which might or might not be drawing directly on uh, my sociological background, I do uh, write op eds uh, uh, political essays for different websites um, And it's a way to get a sociological analysis to a wider audience. And um, I encourage colleagues to do it, uh, to um, take what they know from their research and from their teaching, their scholarly work, and and get that out there.
1: Great. Um, We've been talking with Michael Schwabe about his second edition of his book, Rigging the Game, um, about social and economic inequality uh, in the United States today. And, Michael, we want to thank you for the time that you've taken with us and, again, congratulate you on the success of the second edition of your book and um, also say, I think, in behalf of, of both of us that we're just uh, very grateful um, for your work as a public sociologist um, and public intellectual, and uh, we think that you've had just a tremendous impact um, on uh, on on students uh, and uh, and uh, uh, other professionals uh, in this area. So um, I want to thank you again. Thanks for your
3: time. Thank you for having me on the show.
0: You're welcome. Our pleasure.